0: Hey, everybody. You know, here's an interesting question for all of us. In today's world, post-COVID, everything that's happening, you know, a a lot of the things that are happening in the world. And recently, I was reading a study that Barna published, and it was quite stunning. And these are stats from 2019 and 2020. 2021 numbers are not in there. But this is just in the U.S., 9,500 churches have closed. Pastors are under just a sense of overwhelm right now and overwork. And, you know, what does that mean, you know, even for the rest of us? And, man, uh, there's been a falling away of just solid understanding of who God is and who Christ is and who we are in Christ. And some of the numbers that really jumped out at me in this survey was it was like 32 percent of pastors today feel that your salvation is works-based. That is just not uh, biblical. And there's uh, only 65% of evangelical pastors that have a biblical worldview. And there's so many of us out there right now that, man, we have questions, we're hurting, we've been through adversity, and we're wondering, hey, where does the gospel, where does our faith just intersect with what we're doing every day, everyday life, how we get to show up, how do we get through this? How do we find the fruits of the Spirit? How do we find joy and peace and patience when sometimes it just feels like it's just chaos and noise and pressure all around us? And I got introduced to uh Pastor Josh White by a friend of mine. So, Josh, welcome to the podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: So you just wrote a book called Stumbling Toward Eternity, Losing and Finding Ourselves in the Cross of Jesus. You guys, it's out there now. You can get it. You're a speaker You're a recording artist. I wish we had some time to do some singing. Uh, You love writing and teaching and pastoring, and you founded Door of Hope. It's this incredible thriving church up in uh, the heart of Portland, Oregon. So if you're up there and you're looking for an amazing church, guys, and I love how you described it, right? Uh, Portland is a post-Christian city. Isn't that what you said, Josh?
1: It is. uh, I refer to it as the bohemian capital of the United States. (laughs) Yes. Yes.
0: and yeah, uh, many of you guys might be familiar with the bible project those incredible videos and um oh what's the app that are part of josh because
1: i watch all their videos i think it's in a U bible or something like yes, that or, yes yes yeah. uh,
0: the U version yeah. bible so if you guys are familiar with that that whole team came out of josh's staff so you guys are doing some incredible things up there uh but with this book And what we were just talking about before we got started is hey, there is so much going on right now. And I love something you said here. The cross is not something to climb, it's something to die on again and again. And what is it? And so, Josh, I'd like to maybe even just start, right? You know, as you're working with people and you're speaking and you're writing, and you see probably so many people today that are just, they're troubled, right? Mm -hmm. They're conflicted, or you have. Like, you know, people my age, right? I'm in my 50s, and I see my kids who are being so influenced heavily, really, by the enemy, but by culture, in my opinion, right? It just feels sometimes more challenging. Uh, but maybe what we needed as a American Christian community was some challenges to come to us so we could actually strengthen our faith and be a little bit more bold. But I would love your thoughts as you're leading a community in a very interesting part of the country.
1: Yeah, well, obviously, I mean, having watched the, the mass exodus out of the church, uh, personally, Portland obviously was so sadly at the center. It shouldn't have been at the center of the, the news during all the racial unrest, especially since we're the whitest city in the United States. But it sort of speaks to the idealism of young people people today, the the deep desire to be connected to something that matters, Mm. uh, to do something that's meaningful, even if it's misdirected um, or misguided. You know, Door of Hope has been a powerful experiment of how compelling and relevant the gospel actually is in a city that's truly post-Christian, which I would argue is coming to the rest of the nation coming to theater soon. <laughs> and I, uh, <laughs> I, I think that we're just, we're the, you know, one of the testing grounds of unfortunately with the, you know, Jacques Lowell said, you know, with the rise of technology, sin is becoming increasingly more collective. We can't escape one another's brokenness. It's in our hands 24 seven now. And, and so the imitation of difficult and painful behavior is, it won't be contained to just urban environments anymore. It, it inevitably will spread. And you're seeing that on a national level. So I, I think that um, Stumbling Toward Eternity, which, by the way, it's not out yet. It doesn't come out until February 28th. And, uh, you know, this book is an attempt to really ask the question. I didn't come to faith till I was 27 years old in Seattle. I was a musician, you know, hard drug user. I did all the rock and roll dreams, signed at 22 years old and uh, met Jesus at 27 so I, I knew what I'd been saved from and and saved to, and I understood the costliness of the gospel. And I also have gone through the stages of, you know, I went through my kind of Keith Green phase of just, you know, as an early uh, Christian uh, worship leader, and I was a, a worship artist on Tooth and Nail and toured for a whole year. That was my baptism into American evangelicalism, because one night we'd be playing at John Piper's church and. Uh, Minnesota, and then the next day we'd be playing at at some hyper charismatic church in in the South, where people are convulsing under sheets. So I definitely had my eyes open to <laughs> to kind of every arena of Christendom which is what got me off the road and into full-time ministry. I felt the best way to serve the body of Christ was not touring, but to be a part of a local church, whether it's writing songs or preaching or or whatever. But I have come to the conclusion that one of the deepest needs in the church is a return to just the simplicity of the cross. Paul says, you know, Greeks seek after knowledge. The Jews seek after signs, uh, but we preach Christ and him crucified. Um, A message that's foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a stumbling block, I would argue, not only for the non-believer, but it's a stumbling block for the believer as well, because it's the continual place where we are confronted with our inability to save ourselves. It's the reminder that the gospel is down to earth. Mm -hmm. And what I found in Portland is that people right now, COVID scared people, people with no belief system. While many people that grew up in the church walked away from their faith during COVID, my kids, for example, my son's 21 and my daughter's 17. Both of them went to public school here in Portland. Neither of them had a single Christian peer in their schools. So these kids have never been to church in their lives. They have never heard the gospel. They're the first generation that have grown up truly with no connection whatsoever to any sort of belief system. Gen Xers like me, you know, moved to Portland to get away from their churchy backgrounds with a complete rejection of their parents' faith. And Portland has always been a a liberal city that, not it's different than New York or LA. It's very spiritual. It's just not Christian. Wow. <laughs> but what I found is, you know, a lot of you read Barner reports about people's like reluctance or disenchantment with Christianity. That has not been my experience in Portland. What I found is actually there was a report that is done that Luis Palau shared with me, where it's like 80% of non-Christians who were asked if they would go to church if someone asked them said yes. But then they interviewed thousands of Christians and asked how many. Um, Christians would invite someone to church and only 3% said they would. <laughs> and so wow. uh, we have built a culture at Door of Hope where it's like the best place to meet Jesus is within the invite people to come and see. And this isn't a seeker sensitive thing. This is a, a Jesus call. Just come and see what it looks like for people to worship Jesus. Come and This is why we do church in the park in the summers <laughs> in the most crazy park in the city where people are smoking weed by you while you're trying to preach or naked. (laughs) There's all kinds of weird stuff that happens. But what we've seen is people are curious. They want to know if there's something that can help them. And so uh, my whole book focuses in on where we have kind of misstepped, I think, as a church is we've bought into the lie that we are called to present to the world an ideal that we ourselves can't keep. And that kind of duplicity In this idea of like, we're going to present to this world, this sort of moralistic ideal. I mean, it's why I think pastors are falling. It's why, you know, the scandals of great leaders, it's like they felt like they had to present an ideal that they themselves couldn't live up to. I think we need to come back to Luther's vision of a right understanding. The cross is it can, it continually destroys the theology of glory of the glory of man that is, and brings us to an, an equal playing level where grace really becomes as magnificent as it is, because I think the only thing that compels transformation is to actually believe that on our worst day, we're loved. (laughs) And so, um, so yeah.
0: Well, and you know, you're talking kind of, you know, that ideal you can't live up to. And before you referenced that, a stumbling block. And so when you talked about a stumbling block, what kind of stumbling block is that?
1: I like to refer to it. I kind of coined in the book of this idea, what I call the law of mixture. And so one of the things that I like to point out is that sin has, and I'm a huge like early Luther fan. So like the Heidelberg Disputation, I'm just, unfortunately, a lowbrow. I'm lowbrow when it comes to how I like church liturgy, <laughs> but I really love Luther's theology. And that the whole concept of Jesus has dealt with it. sin. Uh, sin has been forgiven past, present, future in totality as we put our trust in him. But that doesn't mean that sin doesn't even forgiven sin still wreaks havoc in our lives. And so one of the things that I think that the church needs to come back to is a radical vulnerability that if churches actually function more like AA meetings, I think we would be probably closer to an apostolic vision, which is it's a safe place for us to admit our brokenness to one another. And what I would argue is that when sin remains hidden, in our attempts to present the ideal, um, it hides God from our experience. But when sin is confessed, not only to God, but openly to one another, um, it humbles us and it becomes the very place where God meets us most powerfully. And so the law of mixture for me is that everything we do, even in the power of the spirit, still there is the reality that we live in a fallen world and fallen bodies with fallen minds. You know, I grew up without a dad. When I got saved, I didn't miraculously get you know, like i have a new heavenly father but it didn't change the fact that i have i carry a massive hole in my psyche that made even understanding god as father very difficult for me if you have one arm when you get saved it doesn't mean that you now get two arms because you're saved it's like we're not thinking about the fact that yes jesus has saved us yes he's forgiven us but we're still broken people and so i always say when i preach even when i feel the spirit moving powerfully. And people are convicted. I still, at the exact same time, I'm wondering if my pants are too tight, or if people really like me, or <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I think I'm stupid. Like I, the flesh is still right there, always whispering in the ear. And that's where I, I say that the entire Christian life is a continual act of stumbling, which is why it's so good that uh, we're not bigger failures than God already knows we are. We That's need a better.
0: And the enemy is always watching and listening. And when they see you, like wondering, like what if, you know, you say to your friend, "I wonder if they liked me." And the enemy is like, "Yeah, no, they didn't like you." Like, dude, what yeah, you? No. but I got to share something else with you too, because you know, growing up in the church, going to church every Sunday, Sunday school, I had never really understood the gospel message. So I got to mm-hmm. college, and I, you know, I was pretty. I would say, I think for the most part, I made some ethical and moral decisions in. Uh, Most circumstances, but I'll, and I had a personally had a great dad, Josh. Mm -hmm. But you know what? From other humans, even the best relationships, you do not receive unconditional love. And when I was young and reading scriptures and I would read about this love and grace and unconditional love, you know, just stuff I'd done in my own life, I'm like, yeah, but it's not for me, right? I'm not the guy that literally is worthy of being loved. Unconditionally. And in my accident, when I was in God's presence, Josh, and I'll never forget this. When I was hurt, I was laying on the ground, my body was broken, and uh God is now standing next to me. And what is flowing off of him, it, it's emanating, it's rhythmic, it has a power to it. It was actually had a weight to it, like waves of an ocean washing over my body, and it was unconditional love. And I knew immediately in that moment that anything and everything that I'd ever done was not even relevant Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. And that God was already in this relationship with me. And I remember as soon as I felt it, and I didn't know how bad things were at that point, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not worthy of somebody loving me like this. And immediately in that thought, God comforted me. Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you, having never experienced unconditional love till that moment, And understanding even to this day, anything I've ever done since that point, that was 10 years ago till today, is not even relevant. And I started thinking about what is that stuff that we carry around? Because I'd love your thoughts on this, because I I think through our life, right, we develop this identity. And our identity is what we believe to be true about who we are. And we've let a lot of things in that are just not true. We've accepted lies about us because of our experience or things that have been said to us or you know, whatever it happens to be, failures and successes. And then all of a sudden God comes in and he's showing you who he created you to be. And now here's what happens is I think there's a difference between like shame and guilt. If I do something and I see that as a reflection of my character, of my identity, that's a place of deep shame. And that man, that drives a huge wedge, not only in human relationships with the father. But if I realize no, I'm this amazing person that God looks at and smiles with these loving, beautiful eyes. And it was something I did that's not reflective, actually, of my character. It was a bad choice that I made that I can learn from. And I got to tell you, one of the things in, over the last 10 years is I've really worked hard at trying to understand, you know, to shed that counterfeit identity, mm-hmm. understand where those areas of shame come in where God just floods in and heals it. Like I can feel guilty. I could do something bad and know it was wrong. Like snap at my wife, right? Like I'm not an angry, you know, bad person that for shame would come in, but I feel guilty that I was, you know, rude or hurtful or sarcastic. And then I can go apologize. But I don't know when you're working with people, like how do you help people try to, I guess, get past that stumbling block that you're talking about? I shared some of the things that I know have been stumbling blocks for me
1: yeah well my thing is I will push people like really far out of their comfort zone and what I'm willing to confess about I think that we have to model a vulnerability and a rawness one of the things that I think that the book pushes into I mean we talk about vulnerability it's like a I hate when there's like words that are trending you know like vulnerable was like a You know, with uh, Brene Brown, it's like vulnerability became the big hot topic among like spiritual leadership and spiritual health. You know, the church has all these kind of fads that moves in in and out of. But I'm not really disinterested too much in the uh, in theory. I want to see it actually played out in practice. And if you think about an AA meeting, it's like what makes it when it actually works, what makes it work is that the first step is that they I can't save myself. I can't help myself. I need help, and they go into a meeting where they are immediately accepted and loved and not judged. And their actual victory over their alcoholism or drug addiction is their willingness to speak out. That's why they always start: "I am so and so. I'm an alcoholic." We should probably start church that way. I'm Josh. I'm a sinner, because all a saint is is a sinner that's forgiven. <laughs> that's you know, like, like Jesus had two categories for people. Remember what he said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, "You being evil." Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father in heaven give to you? What I see is that there are two categories. There well, wouldn't wouldn't it be great or... to
0: start out and say, hey, my name's John and I'm forgiven. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What an amazing <laughs> affirmation just to speak over all of us. Because even That's, hearing that... that, I bet there's some a lot of people that would just almost cringe at even saying that out loud.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you ask a church, a general church, I like to do this when I speak. I'll ask, I mean, how many of you view yourself as evil? Nobody raises their hand, almost ever, because we reserve that for the worst of people. <laughs> almost um,
0: ever. That's, that's a good call. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there will usually be like maybe one person that will timidly raise their hand up. And it's like, I'm not trying to play a trick question. I'm just like, this is how radical grace is, is God's one way love toward us, as Paul Zoll calls it. I call it love without contingency. It's like God's love is elective. He chooses to love sinners in their sin. It's also holy. He's not content to leave us there. And that's the good news. And so I think that, you know, for Door of Hope, the thing for me, a radical vulnerability is like I can't even get to the church on Sunday morning. I would argue the closer we get to Jesus and the more we push in. He is the light of the world. (laughs) Like we are only light of the world in the sense that we're secondary, like the moon reflecting the sun. And our ability to shine the light of Jesus requires a proximity to him. It's time in his presence, but you can't be in his presence without him continually by his love, exposing how desperately we need him. And so I agree with Oswald Chambers that there there isn't, we don't even really know what sin is until we're actually born again and truly forgiven and saved. I find it's like whack-a-mole. It's like one area, but it's grace that motivates me to continue to the stumbling is, is the beauty of God. God light revealing areas of brokenness in me as I confess that and push into the love of Jesus. It's like, it also becomes our victory. And so what I try to help people understand is listen, like this is, I drove to church today and I almost ran over a cyclist and I got super angry and drove really close to them. And then I noticed that their bike was at the church. (laughs) What are you going to (laughs) do? Pretend it didn't happen. I'm like, I saw the cycle outside that I almost ran over today because I really don't like bicycles. I'm super sorry, but you shouldn't ride in the middle of the road, but I am sorry. <laughs> you know, like, sorry, just, dude, just be on it. Yeah. Just be. Well, you know what? You it.
0: are bringing up a great point. It's interesting. And I don't know whether it's a guy thing. I, I think uh, women are probably better at this, but that uh, place of just radical vulnerability. When mm-hmm. I find when I'm with a group of folks and I start and just, share at a raw level some of the either things I've done or how I'm thinking or feeling in a situation, even when I'm just even questioning, you know, God's done amazing miracles in my life. And I still have some of those times where I just doubt. But then you share it with somebody and all of a sudden it opens up amazing conversation. If everybody's guarded and trying to, you know, put their best foot forward and spin, you're never going to actually get to what you're talking about, you know, getting to that place where I can actually say, you know what, guys, I need some help. Like, I'm struggling. I'm depressed. I don't know how to get out of this. And so question for you, you know, as you're working with, you know, people and in talking with folks, what have you found when somebody says, hey, Josh, how do I turn down the noise and pressure of life and my choices and my circumstances so that I can start to maybe hear the voice of Christ, the Holy Spirit, a little bit more and just take a small step closer toward him? Because I think a lot of people almost feel stuck.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, that this is why, I mean, if COVID proved anything as it forced us into isolation, is that God meant what he said. And you think about the fact that God spoke over Adam in an unfallen state he says, it's not good that man be alone. So that classic idiom, you know, the one who has God has everything. The one who has everything without God has nothing is actually not true because God said himself over man who had God all to himself without sin involved. It's not good that man be alone. Well, I'm not alone. I'm with you, God. He's like, no, you will know me most fully by your interaction with others like you. We are not a trinity like God. And if people are triune, that's generally not a good sign in our in our world. <laughs> so um, that just means they're very fragmented. God yep. is a community within himself and he created us. I believe one of the key understandings of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we're made for relationship. And I don't think we can ever disconnect love of God, love of neighbor. So that I think the baby steps is honestly, is why it's so disheartening that there's a massive exodus from the church right now and I always say, if you want, the first step is you have to take the uncomfortable step of coming out of hiding. If the first outcome of sin is hiding, you got to come into the light. And so this is why we put such a high premium, at of hope on the beauty and the freedom that comes in confession. Because we always talk about that Jesus didn't come to set us free from suffering. He came to set us free from the need to be free from suffering that we might be conduits in this world. You will have tribulation, but our peace is in the say midst more about of that. Storm.
0: He came to set us free yeah. from the need to be free of suffering. Is that what
1: you said? Yeah. I, because think about that.
0: You're right. Cause all of us are, I'll never forget when I was 27 and accepted the Lord and I was in some difficult circumstances in my life. I honestly thought it would get easier. Hey, I'm a mm-hmm. follower of Christ now. Like, things should be better, like in business, I should have better results, better outcomes, all these things. And like, that wasn't the case.
1: Yeah. And I almost (laughs) felt like
0: I was doing something wrong. Because it wasn't getting easier. Because some friends of mine were telling me, you know what, it really should be easier. And I gotta tell you, man, I was so confused at the time. I slowly started kind of fading away, and then leaning back into my own understanding, because I almost felt like that's what I either could count count on or should be able to count
1: on. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is people don't, we have a terrible understanding of the place of suffering and we're not masochistic. We shouldn't go out, look for suffering, but it will find us. I mean, you can't exist without hurting. And I think that, you know, life isn't just difficult. It's often feels impossible. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus doesn't promise the removal of difficulty. And I don't need an explanation. I think we do great damage theologically when we try to create theological grids for why we suffer. I don't, I don't really care why we, I don't know why the serpent's in the garden. (laughs) Like, and I don't need to know what I need to know is that his head is crushed. (laughs) And so I just need to know that God has done something about it, um, that he cares about it. And if the crosses means anything, and this is how I help people begin to move into places of healing is we can't like pretend we haven't been hurt. We can't pretend we don't come from traumatic experiences, but how do we find the pinpoints of grace in those things is we've got to come back to a place that the peace that Jesus brings is himself. And his His peace is peace in the midst of the storm. It's, it's him sleeping in the boat while the waves are crashing around. It's not the calm, placid lake where there's no difficulty. It's like his peace is experienced. His peace is wherever he is. It's why he said to his disciples, follow me. And he never told them where he was going, because it doesn't matter as long as he's the one that's leading. Yeah, when you hear that the classic statement, God has a perfect plan for your life. I'm like, well he has a perfect plan, but for you personally it might be quite difficult <laughs> but it doesn't change the fact that he's good, he loves you and he's with you and that's what I what I want is wherever I am. I just want to know you're with me, Lord and if we can't right. if we don't believe that, you know what are we doing because Jesus said, and lo, I'm with you always till the end of the age And he said the world's going to get worse before he comes back. I always think it's weird that we act surprised what is, Eugene Peterson once said, if we remember that people are sinners, we wouldn't be surprised when they sin. <laughs> I feel like. <laughs> well, you know, it's he said to me uh, recently
0: with all the craziness in the world, he said, uh, you know, did it ever occur to you that nothing occurs to God? <laughs> yeah. He, he, already, he knows all of this. He knows where I am. He knows everybody who's listening right now. He knows exactly where you're at right now and you know what i i learned going through some pretty tremendous adversity in my life josh's and just reading and studying scripture because i wanted answers what i found was god does not promise us any explanations but what he does promise us is to walk through everything hand in hand arm in arm as a friend and i gotta tell you as i really dug into like uh understanding what it meant to you know that jesus said my yoke is light what does that actually mean for me personally and like you're talking about this is a team sport and i would also encourage guys in your church tie in a small group i'm in a pinnacle forum which is a bible study we call ourselves the band of brothers we get together every wednesday morning from seven to eight on zoom and have for four or five years even pre-covid And these are our guys that are, man, we are just masters of not only abiding in the word, encouraging each other, holding each other accountable, but also just being vulnerable. And I got to tell you, it's this, those relationship of other people that are just seeking to truly understand God and what God's will is in the world and to truly join the father and what he's doing. And then uh, we did our retreat recently. And one of the guys looked at all of us and said, hey, guys, you know what? We, we all talk about this. But are you willing to follow Christ, whatever the outcome? Mm-hmm. Look at the disciples. Like, are you truly willing to say, you know what? Your house, your cars, your, right? It could be something awesome. It could be something even more challenging you've gone through. But are we all here to develop such a trust in our Lord Jesus that whatever the outcome, we're going to keep taking that next step forward with joy in our heart. And I got to tell you, that just focused our conversation. We all got, we get together in the mountains there, uh, twice a year just to do life and learn more about Jesus. But uh, man, that was a pretty sobering question, to be honest with you, Josh.
1: Yeah. And we need it. Like a huge part of my book is it focuses a lot of the book focuses on my relationship with my dad who left my mom when I was one. so the book is split between like um, memoir. I'm a massive, like I'm a, Weirdo. I love literature. Um, like, I, I always try to have a novel going, a book of nonfiction, a book of poetry. And the, I kind of got burned out when you're a pastor and you just read theology endlessly. And I just got so wearied by the, you know, most Christian books are written by pastors who aren't necessarily writers first. They're preachers and they're taking their sermons and turning them into books. So the world gets all the beautiful prose, and then we get a lot of prescriptive. Um, sermons turned into books which doesn't necessarily make for memorable writing (laughs) per se i would agree i would agree (laughs) so i mean if only everyone had the concern of emily dickinson do my words breathe (laughs) so um, but uh you know a lot of the book came out of me writing memoir about my um relationship with just my childhood being very broken and having you know, two stepdads that were very difficult. My mom, single for many of my child, really deep poverty of sexual abuse, uh, horribly picked on kid who loved dancing and singing <laughs> as, a, as a young boy, which is does not work out well when you're in a rural town in Eastern Washington in the most like crucial years of your life of sixth through ninth grade, like living in, the de- in a farming town where I had my horse riding accident. And, uh, you know, to entering into adult life, having felt invisible my entire life. And I discovered my ability to write songs. And I, man, I went from being the quiet, invisible kid to like the most ambitious, probably musician in Seattle from about 95 to 98 of just like going after it. And then to have that dream crushed. I think again and again, what I'm trying to, what I was trying to tackle is like, how do we even address not only our present, but, sometimes addressing our present and moving health and healthy way toward our future hope of Jesus. You know, when Paul says forgetting what lies behind, I probably took that a little too seriously when I first got saved and thought I never needed to deal with any of those issues. And I just pretended like I didn't have a dad until I started leading a church. And I read that verse, honor your mother and father, and realized that there was no It was a bit of a bummer. There was no contingency on that. (laughs) And and I had to call my dad. I hadn't talked to him in five years. And that began a 10-year journey up until his death last February of me realizing I can't shepherd and be a spiritual father to a, a flock of a thousand young adults and refuse to reconcile a relationship with a dad I don't know who's a stranger to me, who chose drugs and alcohol his whole life. And my dad never broke from his alcoholism. He was a longtime Coke user in his body. He died at 69 years old, in and out of ICU for the last five years, like probably five times, <laughs> like wow. two to five times a month, he would be in ICU, but he found Jesus. He met Jesus in the midst of it. And it was through a willingness um, of me to say the cross um, means that I'm no different than my dad at a fundamental level. We're both lost people without Jesus. And uh, it may express itself differently or more extremely in some. And I have to believe that this gospel, if it's good enough to save me and it's good enough to save these kids in Portland, then Al White, even alone in his cabin up in Soldotna, Alaska, smoking three packs of Camel Reds a day and drinking a fifth of vodka, Jesus loves him just as much. And do I fundamentally believe that? And so the book was a big... A lot of it is how did the words that Jesus speaks from the cross actually continue to bring what I call good deaths. They wield a blow to one arena of our kind of self-reliance, but the other side of that good death is resurrection life. And how did it interact actually in real life with me learning to truly forgive my dad and not just forgive him, but really come to love him and to be with him. The last chapter of the book is me sitting with my dad when he died and me playing a song that I had written a week before I went up there, and it woke him up um, out of his kind of rugged, like right before he passed. And the song playing, and he looked into my eyes and he couldn't breathe, and he's weeping and he can't speak, and he was scared because he couldn't breathe. And the deep desire I had to look away because I couldn't help him, only to realize that I am helping him by I'm being a conduit of Jesus there to help my father enter into the kingdom of a faith that he had you know he's my dad's like the guy that will be like just getting through the flames this one was was saved i remember him telling me he's like i'm like dad i heard you prayed to receive jesus and he goes i did and i go what's wrong you sound kind of down he's like i'm not sure it's stuck (laughs) and i'm like i go i think jesus's grace is stickier than your doubt and his whole concern is that he couldn't walk anymore if he stopped drinking, it would kill him. I'm like, are you worried about your smoking and drinking? I'm like, I'm like, dad, you're we're way past that. Like you're not going to do it. You were, you're the thief on the cross, but the good news of the gospel is thieves become sheep and that's an incredible thing. And so, wow. and he goes, I believe that. And I pray to Jesus every day. And then he goes, can I ask you a question, son? I'm like, what's that dad? He's like, is it okay if I call him the big fella? <laughs> and I'm like, as long as you started with Jesus. And he's like, I did, but I think of him as the big fella. (laughs) And I just love, like, that's to me is like the power of the gospel. It breaks the grids. Like, you know, we love to front load the gospel and we like to (laughs) back load it. I think we tell people, you can't save yourself. Stop climbing the ladders that exhaust you and put your faith in Jesus. And then we get him in the church and they're like, actually, we lied let's give, we're going to give you five more ladders that are twice as tall as the ladders you were trying to climb before. We need to keep in mind that it is the gospel of grace that actually is the only motivation for our sanctification. And so, I mean, that's my passion. And I see the fruit of that in Portland. Well, it's as, also as such it a beautiful a
0: message, right? Because uh, uh, what you said before, right? For many of us, it's like this ideal we can't live up to, this perfect standard. And then if we make a mistake, or we don't do it, or we have a bad day, well, that's proof that that standard's not for us, right? What you're saying is, no, this is a beautiful relationship full of grace with somebody who cares about you so deeply, it's almost hard to comprehend with your human mind, and when you have a bad day, just think about it. I I was thinking about this the other day. My kid did something really stupid, really, really Mm -hmm. stupid. You know what? My first thought is, my gosh, I just my first reaction was just to come over and give him a big hug. And we cried together about something because it was going to have consequences. And I said, don't worry about it. Cause we're going to walk through this together and there might, you know, there's going to be some ramifications to this, but, and I'm thinking God looks at us at even a, such a different level than that. We can't mm-hmm. even, that is a beautiful thing. So, but Hey, before we wrap up, how do people, get in touch with you the it's door of hope pdx.org is the yeah. church website how else can people, can people get in touch with you
1: well um yeah i mean people can just email me at josh at door and then yeah i'm a, you know my background was worship before i became a church planter um preacher so i mean i still we have a record label out of door of Hope called deeper well and um uh, called I, what? so my what was uh, deeper the, the, deeper the, well, the label, okay. yeah the label's called deeper well and so you know portland because our people are post-christian and the kids that got saved at door of hope and my background being music it's like our worship music is really unique in that it's people they never heard a hill song they don't know what bethel is they don't know they're not privy to like christian music industry so It makes for some really, I think, really fresh reflection of like what it means to worship Jesus and people that are meeting him and trying to express that in the way they understand. And uh, yeah, that my book is available for pre-order on Amazon. It comes out February 28th. And then I, I travel a lot for the Luis Palau. Um, organization Luis is, was a really dear friend of mine a mentor and uh and he invited me in to, so i do a lot of their renew festivals the front end festivals um which i'm i'll be doing several this year in multiple places so yeah so lots of fun too little time too many people to tell about tell jesus about well <laughs> uh,
0: it's changed your life changed my life so everybody listening uh just you know everybody listening i heard this conversation Josh, would you mind maybe just leading a prayer for everybody out there going, you know what? I'd really like to know Jesus. And uh, I think now's the time. Yeah. yeah, Lead everybody listening in a prayer.
1: Yeah. Yeah, sure. Lord Jesus, I'm so grateful for your word and for your people. Um, And I'm grateful that you said, if when the son of man be lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. Lord, we don't believe that's a hyperbolic statement. We truly believe that when you are lifted up, wherever you are lifted up, people are drawn. It doesn't mean that the response is the same, but people are drawn. And I pray that people would respond to your love, that they would hear those first words that you spoke when the nails were hammered into your hands. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is not you pleading with an angry father. This is you revealing the very heart of the father, uh, that you are a forgiving God. I pray for those that have have come to the recognition that they're lost. They can't save themselves. Um, They have come to that place where they truly have discovered a poverty in spirit. I can't climb. I'm exhausted. Jesus, thank you that the gospel is not defined by a ladder in which we climb our way to heaven. It's about you, Jesus, who is the ladder who has come down from heaven to us. It is truly down to earth. And So I pray for those that might be listening that don't know you that they would just bring that simple prayer. Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God. And I ask that you would come into my life. I believe you died for me and that you rose from the dead. And that you would would cover me with your forgiveness and that you would bring your peace by your Holy Spirit into my life. I pray that you would help me to understand that I am truly loved. And Lord, that is my prayer. And your word simply says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. Lord, that is an incomprehensible offer. (laughs) And uh, thank you that on our worst day, you love us, that you're crazy about us. So I just pray that your love would cover, that we would just simply all say together, Jesus is Lord. Amen.
0: Amen. All right. Well, guys, if you prayed that, reach out to Josh. Talk to a friend in your neighborhood, Your maybe your neighbor who you know goes to church. Invite yourself, right? Don't wait for them to invite mm-hmm. you. And yeah. i got to tell you, what a call to action. You know, I, I was actually just thinking to myself, I've invited three of my four neighbors that are right next to me to church. And they know we go to church. But we have not been, my wife and I even haven't been proactive in just reaching out to the guy across the street and Two or three people around us and just saying, hey, we're going to church this Sunday. We'd love to have you come with us and go to lunch afterwards. And I really appreciate that. That's a great reminder because we all get, you, know, you yeah, know.
1: People aren't projects and we don't save them. We're just called to be witnesses. And we just and love them where right. they're at and yeah, and invite them to come, come and see the Jesus that we, I always say, we don't have to convince them to believe what we believe but they should at least believe that we believe what we're telling them. (laughs) Exactly, (laughs) And you know what you, uh, I
0: love what John Maxwell always said though, it was in this talk that he gave about influence and it was about, you know what? You have to connect before you can pull. You have to connect before you can influence somebody and you can't do that unless you're in relationship with somebody. So the guy across the street, who I see all the time, who I don't have a relationship with, I only know his first name. How am I ever going to have any positive influence or meet maybe you know serve him uh so just that for me is a great reminder and god bless you and all the work you're doing and i really look forward to hearing about the success of the book and um look forward to a another conversation down the road
1: yeah thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it bye john
0: see you buddy